to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. In this first season, not just a statistic, I'm bringing you the stories of women in sport from career start to the boardroom. Every episode is with an amazing woman from a range of different sports and a range of different positions in sport. And every episode is going to give you some actionable insights as a sports fan, as a member, as an administrator, as a leader to take action on how to close the leadership gender gap in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Hannah McDougall is a dual Paralympian and previous world record holder, representing Australia in swimming and cycling. She also co-captained the Australian swimming team at the 2006 World Championships and the 2008 Paralympic Games. Hannah has completed a Bachelor of Exercise and a Sports Science Bachelor of Commerce in Sports Management degree at Deakin University and completed a PhD in Athlete Wellbeing at La Trobe University. When Hannah's not in training, she's an inclusion advocate, mindfulness, breathwork and well-being pracademic and a senior advisor for community programs and campaigns at the Victorian State Emergency Services. Hannah gives a compelling call to action. We need to normalise people with a disability in the sports space by increasing their representation in the media, sharing their stories and focusing on their strengths. She says organisations have a role in creating a more inclusive space for people with disabilities and can do so by awarding their contribution, equal access to facilities and by using more inclusive language and content. I've also got a call to action from this episode. I want to see more research into disability and sport so that as leaders in sport we can make more informed decisions and take into account the needs of people with a disability. Enjoy this whole episode of the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. So Hannah, it is fantastic to catch up again and thank you so much for making time for this really important podcast about the stories of women in sport. You have many strings to your bow. So you do a lot of stuff and you've done a couple of different disciplines from a sport perspective, but everything you you do in your professional and, and private life is grounded in sport and well-being. So when did your woman in sports story start? And and I guess, in other words, why sport? <laughs> oh, thank you, Michelle. And I think it's so beautiful and aligned heavily with this conversation in terms of how that journey did start. And that journey started way back in year four when I was, you know, nine or 10 years old. And my beautiful, beautiful sports teacher at school, Miss Wilson, encouraged me to uh, go into the, the zone swimming championships after I'd done a little bit of running and it wasn't so great for my leg. And then as a result, I was selected to go into the state championships. And I remember being this 
extremely nervous and anxious and I I didn't want to do it. I was just like, no, 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 that's way beyond me. Uh, why Why would I be competing there? And it was because of her initial support and being like, Han, like it'll be great that I, I began that in in some senses that sporting journey from the swimming sense because it was at that state championships I picked up this tiny literally about this big piece of plastic medal and for the first time I hadn't come last in a race because at school I came last in everything and so for the first time I was like, oh, I'm actually not too bad at something. <laughs> this is great. And so the self-esteem and the confidence were increased. And then also having those connections with other uh, swimmers with an impairment, disability, and not feeling quite so alone. So you have this whole gambit or melting pot of goodness that sport can bring to, to people's lives. Uh, and so for me, that's where I suppose that female journey started uh, for me in sport. It's- it's interesting how many of us who are in the ecosystem that is sport, whether it's athletes, administrators and everything in between, have got that person from when we were small people that has, has identified something and said this sport can be a way for you to insert whatever the outcome is for you, inclusion, participation, and but that feeling of belonging and, hey, I'm, I'm good at something and I can do this. Uh, I think there's a real, there's a call out straight out to how important I think sports in schools is and in in junior sport, uh, in junior schools, in primary schools, I see lots and lots of work to get women in particular re-engaged with sport to part- at, at a participative level later in their lives. But let's, I think, you know, I'm, I'm probably like you, I've had that early experience with a great teacher with, with parents who just said, you know, our kids will play sport. And it was a way to belong and participate and stood me in good stead, which it's obviously stood you in good stead because you've got two elite level disciplines, both swimming and cycling. So you identify as an as an elite athlete with an impairment, as an elite female athlete, because of course the focus of, of our stories and, and our research is the experience of women in sport. As you as you think about your identity as a female athlete with impairment, can you think of any of those aha moments or defining moments where you realise that there were barriers or or attitudes that created barriers to perhaps your able-bodied colleagues? Yeah, that's a a really great question, Michelle. And I think if we do look at, so female athletes with a disability impairment, and it depends, uh, the terminology that you're you're looking to use, and, and those words can mean different things to different people. So when we're looking at my experiences in that space, you know, as you've mentioned, there's that double whammy. So you're female and you have an impairment or a disability. (laughs) We generally find there's not a lot of research, but across the literature, you find there's more so that perhaps exclusion piece or discrimination piece more so because of the disability factor rather than the, the gender factor, which is maybe understandable now that I'm thinking about it in in terms of my experiences and when you have a physical disability that's really visible there's more kind of perhaps discrepancies because of that disability piece more than the combined piece but 
so for example, you know, I know Carol Cook, my great mate who who rides a trike, she, she'll be out riding and she'll have people wind down their windows and say, get on a real bike, you're taking up too much space uh, because she's riding that trike and they don't understand that cycling is for everyone and can be done in so many different ways. However, I think maybe not for me personally, but when we look at females with a disability in sport, you can see discrepancies in terms of perhaps the number of sports available and the the male versus female ratio. So things like sledge hockey or other perhaps male-dominated sports in a Paralympic sense is perhaps one example I think that brings to life some of those themes that, I mean, sport itself can be and traditionally is, is associated with a lot of masculinity, the whole no pain, no gain, all of these concepts. And so then that kind of in turn shapes the cultures within sport, right? So then you have that filter down effect uh, of the, you know, the terms oh, you played like a girl, but now we've flipped that on the header, right? And play like a girl, that's really powerful. Absolutely. I love how we're telling those stories. So I think for me, if I'm bringing it back to the question, for me personally, it's more been I've noticed differences because of the disability and then perhaps a lack of opportunities in terms of races or events rather than being female. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is where intersectionality is such a complex issue because there's, it's not like there's, okay, this is where my gender starts and finishes. This is where my ability or disability starts and finishes. Of course, it's all intersecting and overlapping. And, and I agree that was a, a simple question about a complex matter I suppose the what what I'm interested in is for our listeners to to this podcast and to the the, the work that I do is really trying to surface people's mindsets because everyone holds mindsets about everything and and I think some of those mindsets and they can be really benevolent or really you know benign but they can put barriers in the way of of full participation and you know full self-determination as well and it's interesting listening to Dylan Alcott <clears throat> who of course has announced his retirement from from tennis and he has also been nominated as as one of the Australians of the year yesterday his interview was really powerful about how you know one in four people in Australia has identifies as having a disability, whether it's acquired or with birth, acquired or with age. And, you know, that's a 25% of our population, but we're not seeing that level of representation. Now, why is that? And you've got to come back to, so what are the attitudes that perhaps we have unconsciously or inadvertently put in the way of women with a disability participating both at a, at a, I guess, a weekend warrior level versus, there you go, that's quite masculine language, versus elite. So it is interesting. And I think Dylan makes some really good points, which apply just as equally uh, and have come out in a lot of research too, focused on, on women in sport with a physical disability or disability, is that, you know, we haven't had the role models, the visible role models to look up to and and be able to open those doors in terms of our perceptions. And I think that's not only 
helpful for the people who want to participate, but also society and those biases in general, right? Because the more that we normalize all of these people play sport, and it's not, I don't think, to just women with a disability or women in sport. It's, you know, people of all ages and ethnicities, multiculturalism, all of these various groups in societies that we uh, have put labels on. which is an interesting conversation in itself because I remember going when I was volunteering for Red Dust actually and we went out to this little remote community called Kintor which I think is like 500 kilometers west of of Alice so um, Uluru big big drive (laughs) and driving there um, and arriving and these kids had never seen an amputee before and I just I loved their inhibition they were just like oh what's that? Can we touch it? Can you take that off? Put it back on? And all of these just beautifully innocent questions to because they were curious, right? But from my understanding, and I, I could be wrong, but they didn't actually have a word for disability or amputee right. in their language because it just wasn't a concept for them. So I found that really fascinating in terms of you know how they then approach the person and, and what kind of doors that could open up in terms of our attitudinal approach to how we we talk about this space, etc. So just thought that was absolutely beautiful. We had we had a great time. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine there's it and it is the, the innocence of of children. You know that as you said, questions um about your physical, the way you present physically are based on curiosity and that's it nothing else. So completely innocent. We then learn how to do some stuff because of course we can't all go around, well, maybe I need to challenge that. And we can't all go around asking questions like a five-year-old. But then again, sometimes you think maybe if we did, life would be simpler. However, I digress. So I think the one of the, the pieces there about how inequity or equal access, equal opportunity plays out has been highlighted recently where the Athlete prize money was was highlighted in a very public way. Now we've heard the stories around surfing and the the women's football and what have you about you know equal pay for women and men. And then there's been another big pay deal done this week for women in rugby in in Queensland, which I was interested to see the Twitter threads on last night, which were just you know made me have a number of face palm moments. Anyway, but. I was really shocked, like genuinely shocked that I didn't know the Paralympians did not receive the same prize money for medals as able-bodied Olympians. And of course, that came out in a very public way after a social media campaign by Chloe Dalton uh, just recently. And whilst the situation was rectified, so I think Chloe and, and her movement ensured that Frankly, I think the government was shamed into going, oh, we forgot about them. We didn't ever think about the fact that these are elite athletes. These are our Olympians. They, these are our medal winners. But what's your experience been in terms of disabled sport receiving equal pay access and, of course, opportunity? So, Michelle, I like to talk about the good stuff and the opportunities that we can use to improve the current situation. And for me personally, I'm proud and saddened by the progress that we've made over the past 20 years that I've been involved in elite sport. So I remember clearly being the only one competing in a Uh, It was called a multi-class event back in the day, so a para-swimming event down in Tasmania. 
in the early like late 1990s, early 2000s, only one competing. So in terms of that's mostly to do with, you know, we used to have this horrible attitude of if you have a disability, we just shut you away, which has taken a long time to overcome and to be like, well, why the hell are we, do we have that attitude? We can, if we need to adapt, we adapt, but this is a person first, right? And so that was really evident, I think, in my early sporting career days where we still had these societal perceptions of disability. And then we probably had this wave, this shift to sport, Paralympic sport, was Cripspirational, right? Where you are an inspiration because you're because of your disability, not because of your athletic ability. Did you and just say Cripspirational? Yes, Cripspirational. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's a good term. Like, it I mean, is. I'm I'm out on a bike and I have people ride past me and they're like, it's great to see you out riding a bike. And they're coming from a really, a really nice heart space. However, I'm probably, you know, I've got a heart rate of 70 beats per minute where I've just finished an effort, smashing it, 180 beats per minute and doing really well. Like if they had come up and said, hey, that was a great effort. Great. You know, it's like going to the shops. It's like, oh, great to see you in the shop. So that's what we kind of mean by Cripspiration. So it's just a changing of attitude. And like I, you know, it, it, w- it would be the same for me to, I, I would jokingly say, oh, it's, you know, at somebody at your age, it's great to see you out on the bike. Like I would never say that, but it's the same kind of analogy there. So we used to have, you know, this Paralympic space be Cripspirational, but I think we're now seeing this third wave uh, where people are appreciating the Paralympics for our athletic ability and all of the crazy things that we do in that space um, rather than because we have a disability. So that's been, I think, a really positive shift and you've kind of seen go hand in hand with that this increase of uh, your ability to compete maybe not only in in your para categories but also alongside your people with two arms two legs for example and for example at the moment with Oz cycling we're working on the regulations that enable clubs to have the confidence the skills and the resources to be able to support that to happen and the consider like there are like we've got to be realistic there are considerations when you have a trike or a hand cyclist racing alongside somebody who's riding two wheels like that's just a you know reality of sport and the mechanics and the dynamics of cycling so we're having these conversations and and I believe the appetite at the moment is a lot higher than it was pre-covid or two years ago or even a year ago I think Tokyo was beautiful and it has helped us gain some momentum in this space, still got a long way to go. <laughs> in terms of equal prize money, I mean, for, for myself, I was I haven't been discriminated against because of my gender or disability in terms of equal pay, whereas I know others have. And I did a research piece on it. And, you know, there's that gap, obviously, and you've done a lot of research in that space as well. So for me personally, it's more been in my ability to participate as an athlete rather than from a employee within a sporting sense. Yeah. It is interesting the when you say that, you know, we've come a long way, but we've still got a long way to go. And you, know, you could you can absolutely say the same about gender. And I think the 
where I see the evidence that we still have a long way to go. It's a very fine line between creating the burning platform for action, but while still celebrating that you know, that the fact that, yes, you know, you were, you were the only one in a race only 20 something years ago versus now, you know, the opportunity to, to participate. And I, and I agree that for grassroots sporting communities, the ability to be curious and move beyond the, oh, crumbs, this is a difficult topic. How would we accommodate um, athletes who are disabled? What do we need to do? Being able to open up those conversations, just like, you know, I hope to open up many more conversations about gender and about women participating. I think there's a lot of people who are, as you said, they come from a really good place. However, those attitudes, which are so ingrained in us, tell us that we've got to be kind and considerate, a little bit condescending and patronising to good on you for you poor little thing competing. Good on you. You're so inspired. The reality is, Hannah, Hannah, you whip my ass in anything, albeit you're a lot younger than me, but you know, you are an elite athlete. I am not. And th- that that is that. So I think there's, there's a bunch of stuff for administrators to pay attention to. How do they get curious about being a destination club or um, association for all athletes, all genders, all abilities? Um, and then how do they how do they have those conversations? How do they not let their, I guess, reluctance to offend get in the way of saying, what do we need to do here to accommodate or provide facilities or reasonable adjustments so that we can have a greater number of people participating in our organisation? That then leads me to participation and um, I'm coming back round to, 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 to money again because that's clearly, you know, we have, there is a whopping gender pay gap in sport. It is up to 50% in, at, at some levels. And the reason the gender pay gap is so wide is because quite simply, all of the very senior high paying roles are dominated by uh, able-bodied white men. And so we see, we see this extraordinary gap that is disproportionately uh, larger than the gap that we see in in all communities. I find it difficult to find information about how disability plays into that. And I know that this is this data is not readily available, but what's your experience been around pay gaps, gender pay gaps with that intersectionality, you know, that, that the intersection of, of, of disability. Cause I think, I think it just stands to reason if there's a gender pay gap that that's, that is that big in sport more generally, if we niche down to disabled sport, all ability sport, it stands to reason that it's going to be there as well. But I have no data <laughs> to prove it. <laughs> and Michelle, I don't think there is data to prove it yet in terms of any peer, like, peer-reviewed papers I'm, I'm happy to be corrected and if some if any of the listeners want to send us anything in to to say hey here it is that would be really exciting in a sense there's nothing that i've found recently you know human being don't know everything really oh that's disappointing i thought you did know everything <laughs> only when it comes to um baking some good banana bread um but that's yes. another podcast I, I like if i look back i struggle i i think maybe once or twice I received some prize money when I was swimming. So I swam from, you know, late 1990s to 2010. My mind literally pretty much draws a blank. And that would have been the same just for 
for swimmers, male and female, across Paralympic sport, where I then shift to a cycling perspective, this this notion of, of prize money within your local club competitions uh, for a weekend race was, was completely foreign. And so entering that and, and racing against the Ablebots, I might pick up a little bit here and there. If we look at the structure when we do have, for example, a time trial in cycling and we have a para category, there is that equal prize money this year and, and maybe over the past couple of years for that category. You still can notice though, like there's just, if we're realistic, there's, you know, there's only, you might have some numbers, for example, fifth elite men in A grade and then We've built upon having six up to maybe about 15 or 20 in the the paracycling classification, and that's men and women. So you can still, you can see we've made progress, but we've still got progress to go. But if you're, we need to tap into that market. One in, one in four, one in five people do identify as having some kind of disability. So I see it as an opportunity there to help people in so many different ways to find the joys that sport can bring to be more inclusive. And so, yes, there's a lot of work that we can can do in that space. Because, of course, prize money is just one part of an athlete's pay packet. Then you've got sponsorship. The commercial side of sport is a really fascinating discussion when it comes to the traditional way that sponsors sponsor, which is typically male sports. Uh, we have some notable exceptions, but I, you know, again, when you look at sponsorship deals and when you look at high profile brand ambassadors across the globe as sporting brand ambassadors, you know, again, I can think of Dylan because Dylan has, you know, he's had to deal with the ANZ and, and a couple of other things, but gee whiz, there's, you know, and we're starting to see some of the other athletes be profiled, which I think will lead to some of that being able to tap into what is a very, very lucrative income um, opportunity. And of course, uh, you know, we, we know that without the income, you can't participate fully as a professional athlete. And therefore, if you can't have all of the stuff that goes with being a professional athlete, i.e. being able to train, being able to have all of the team around you to be at, at your best, will your standard be able to meet the standards of someone who has got that team around them? You know, you think about, I, I was looking, reading an article about Ash Barty this morning and, and her, all of the coaches and everyone that basically gets ash on the court and you think well she's got the means she's got the financial means to do that this this is another area where we're where we're locking out opportunity and we're locking out participation so again i don't i think what's important and coming back to your original thing around you know this please if there's if there's data out there we need it now why do we need it because with awareness then comes well then comes action because people like you and others and myself we will advocate and some in some cases agitate for change, but we've got to have that data because let's face it, right now, Hannah, you're a sample size of one, a, a very good representative, you know, you're a representative of a, a bunch of people, but not all people who identify as disabled, but your experience is just one. So we need that data because 
then we can say, here are the facts and this is what needs to change and here's the benefit. So I think it's really, really important that it's another example of inequity where we don't have the same level of data, we don't have the same level of research and visibility around the lived experience of a woman who identifies as disabled in sport and that lived experience across her participation, um, remuneration, so yeah. on and so forth. And Michelle, I'm I'm highly aware that I'm sitting here as a, you know, a middle-class white female who has been very privileged in terms of her education, but also wanted to bring into the conversation, you know, that sponsorship piece. And I did my, my honours thesis was on disability sports sponsorship. And my theory going into it was that you would have, there's this, this concept of, of match or congruence in that sponsorship relationship because when you have that match or congruence and that fit, it's more likely to resonate with your audience um, and then they're more likely to take your message on board. So that goes back to schema theory, etc. So when we're looking at that, my theory was you can match or have that congruence across multiple platforms, multiple dimensions. The main one being in sport, you know, your sponsors have that that physical, that visual match or congruence. So there's that strength aspect, that's that masculinity aspect, et cetera, that's shining through. And my theory was that for your Olympic sport athletes, the sponsors would focus more on that. And for your Paralympic sport athletes, that match and congruence was created through vision and mission alignment and value alignment. So you don't have that, you know, that physical imagery happening. And that's pretty much what I found. Hannah, can I play that back? So I've, and I'm going to be extraordinarily blunt and crude here. So as a sponsor, I'm going to sponsor an able-bodied athlete because they represent strength, strength and achievement and um, elite, all, all of those words. If I'm sponsoring a, an athlete who identifies as disabled, it's about I'm doing the right thing and and this is inspirational and I'm appealing to that, that we're a good we're a good organisation that has a, we're, we're a social licence to trade. So it's not about accomplishment necessarily. It's about doing the right thing. Yep, corporate that, social responsibility. What, corporate okay. social responsibility. And in the sense of, you know, you have a, a male athlete with big biceps who are promoting a protein powder, whereas you would never see a athlete with a disability promoting a protein powder, just as, as one example. But that was, so what are we now, 2021? That was research done in 2014. So I think, again, we have made progress since that time, which is which is great. And if you also look at just research in general in Paralympic sports, you will find that discrepancy between there's a heavier pool of male athletes who make up that data set compared to your female athletes. Like from memory, the systematic review that I did, while about 75% of the studies did include female athletes, it's so disproportionate in terms of, you know, you might have 44 male athletes and 13 female athletes in that study cohort. So I think in terms of some maybe easy wins moving like for me I see them as as relatively easier fixes to be aware of so now that we're talking about this and shining the spotlight on it well when we are looking at those research samples or when we are looking at our sponsorships how can we have this diversity inclusion piece within them well uh, for, for me that the advice I give to to my clients particularly those in sport is you know I, I want you to look at 
your member base, your paying member base, so your revenue streams, and and ask yourself who you're missing out on. And look, I, I, I default to football because I have a, obviously a love of and I've done a lot of work in footy. And I look at even the, the, the last board that I was on, we were a membership. Actually, let me lift it up because I know I've worked with a couple of the AFL clubs. Membership is paid membership, largely able-bodied, white or Anglo-Celtic men. Fandom, however, when you look at fans, it's a very, very different experience. And for me, the commercial, the commerciality around diversity, equity and inclusion is just so strong. You want more members, paying members, you want more sponsors, you got to tap into sections of the community that are just massive fans of your sport, whether it's footy, cycling, swimming, whatever it may be, but you've actually got to give them something to identify with. So, and, and then from a participation um, perspective, how many people would know about the sport and think, well, there's someone that I can identify with. How many people would take that protein powder if Dr. Hannah McDougall or Dylan Alcott or, you know, Louise Savage or, you know, I've got to say I'm a consumer. And if I see myself represented back at me, and let's face it, I am also, I'm a middle-aged because I'm going to live to 100 20. I'm a middle-aged, white, educated, privileged woman. But the reality is I'm also middle-aged. I'm now in my 50s and I don't see a lot of me reflected back at me from a participation and and other things around sport. But when I do, I get on it. I say, all right, that's I'm, I'm getting on and I'm going to be a part of that. So I'm not oversimplifying because this is these are very, very commercially savvy decisions to say who is what is the great fabric of Australia or the world and how might we create this ecosystem that is more inclusive and there's a hell of a lot of mutuality. You know, there's mutual financial uplift by including people beyond the very narrow paradigm that we've had. Anyway, I think we're, we're in violent agreement, but... <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but you, 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 the, the call to action here is shine a light. So for, for the sports administrators right now, shine a light on, have a look at where your sponsorship money is going to and coming from and who 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 might better identify with your sport, your club, your organisation if you were, you had some different role models being showcased. But it just can't be wallpaper because we can't just put up some stock images of disabled athletes on our website and go, yay, we're all, we're all disabled athletes. <laughs> when, of course, the facilities aren't there, yada, yada, yada. So I think we've covered some of those you know, the, the kind of gnarly issues around gender, you know, women versus men. And I think what I hear from you is that in the, the disabled sporting community, there's not a lot of data, but also you feel like you, there's been relatively, and tell me if I'm saying this wrong, but there's been a relatively level playing field for women and men in the disabled sporting community. Would you say that? Or have I got that wrong? Yeah, yes and no. Okay. So... I'll start off with, you know, that simple example of if you look at, you know, male and female athletes competing at the Paralympic Games purely because of some sports, for example, you know, your wheelchair rugby is dominated by male athletes. So you typically will see more males in that sense and in some sports, whereas, you know, cycling, we have a, a few more males on the team, but not many. Swimming, I would say, you know, it's pretty equal there. It, it varies a lot uh, in terms of 
that discrepancy, I would like to point out uh, and kudos to them, like in terms of the direct athlete income support system that's now in place, that's come in leaps and bounds in terms of equality over the past couple of years. So that is a massive improvement and step forward for athletes competing for Australia. Um, at that elite level. So can you just explain a little bit about or expand on that that scheme? Because it is it's a yep. really important enabler. Yeah. Oh massively so. So for our so athletes who are in the system and categorized and there's these interesting terms like podium and podium potential and etc. Based on a number of factors. So world rankings, progression through the sport, and now things as well like if injury, pregnancy, etc. All of these factors are influencing categorization and then the financial support you are receiving to help you train, compete, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if you're ranked number one or two in the world, you would get a lot higher amount than somebody who's ranked maybe fourth or fifth or sixth and eighth, et cetera, et cetera. So you just have a decreasing scale depending on where you're ranked, which I think is an interesting concept in itself because, you know, when you're at the top, you generally, you know, more resources to tap into. Whereas when you're just making it, you don't really have anything. Yeah, I know. And it kind of seems like it seems <laughs> slightly self-defeating. So I think there's, you know, there's reward versus enablers. So anyway, yes. yep, I think there's, a, there's another opportunity for our sporting administrators Listening. Yeah, but so that system in itself has come a long way to now in working towards equalization across your athletes who compete in Olympic sports and athletes who compete in Paralympic sports, which has been a really big shift. So I would like to recognize that uh, shift that has occurred. Naturally, you know, still still more work to go. But yeah, so so legs up for me in in that sense. Looping it back around, I, I suppose it's a really interesting one about pay, um, and, and the, as I said, reward versus enablers. And I suppose what I'm I'm looking for is, do you see? I think there there are going to be natural overrepresentation of men, as you said, wheelchair rugby, things like that. So, is the how do I word this? Is the representation attracting the money, but we're not enabling more participation by women in some of either mm. you know the, the the currently purportedly egalitarian sports like cycling, swimming, or is there more to? I mean, there's always more to be done, but what else needs to be done there? So it's it's actually what are the differences? Is the is the level is the playing field level for women? and men in disabled sport in one short word <laughs> mm. Mm. so again that, it comes back round to that conversation of you know we've got to look at those layers uh, of, of intersectionality when we talk about women in sport let's point out a good case study though if I can look at something that has worked well so the Victorian Institute of Sports you know the moment I walked through their doors in 2001, I think as like a 13-year-old, I they had a really strong inclusion approach. There's never been discrepancy between, you know, like who can and cannot access the gym or something. We've had recognition from having, you know, the Athlete with a Disability Award. I've had, you know, I'd love to see that renamed um, to something else. But, uh, and then we've also had, you know, uh, shifts from paracyclists now being mainstream within the cycling program. Uh, so there's been those shifts happen as well. So I think we can continue forward 
uh, and use models like that of integration to then normalize this is just how we play sport. You can play it this way and that way, regardless of if you're able-bodied, disabled, male, female, short, tall, blah, 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 blah. So the Victorian Institute of Sport didn't kind of magic that up, though. That would have been leader-led. So that there's, you know, it starts at the top. We've got to have that visible vocal commitment by the leaders of the sport, the industry, saying this is what we're going to do. And, you know, this is now 20 years ago that you're talking about. So at that point, there were leaders who were saying, this is the way we do stuff around here, which is a great segue to talk about leadership and your call to action to sporting administrators, sporting leaders. How might they take a leaf out of Victorian Institute of Sport and say, how might we think about including more women, more women who are disabled and more people who are disabled in sport in our organisation? I think, Michelle, there's multiple ways to approach this, which if using a combined and a combined approach, you know, you'll have the sum will be greater than the parts in terms of then what you are able to to achieve. There needs to be that focus and development on those role model systems, having those visuals and those stories, etc. In from awards to people across who are working in sport to people who are participating in sport. I think that also there's that beauty in terms of having that mentor to walk alongside you. So being able to shift from that really territorial space like oh we did this well and we don't want to share it let's you know collaborate and engage with others to share those learnings of this worked this didn't work blah 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 so i think that that's just a it's like a mental shift from it's a really simple mental shift from from me and i to we and us. So that's language then. And I think language plays a really important part in this shift that we're talking about as well. So the importance of of language, how we use that and how it can be used for good and a really powerful tool in this space. You know, I always encourage people to to use a person-first approach rather than focus on gender, disability, age, all of the things, that strengths-based approach. So collaboration, language, visuals and stories. So those stories come out in our awards that we have, in the ads, the sponsorship, the campaigns, all the things. So I think if we kind of look at that then in terms of a a total approach, that's really powerful uh, to then help promote that action that we we would like to see and and progress towards equality. Yeah, and there's a lot in that. And if I'm a sporting administrator, I... I might feel overwhelmed at, at the at the sheer opportunity, which might feel like a mountain to scale. And we know that that sporting organisations, and I, I'm, I'm actually talking everything from grassroots right through to to elite. Now we know that sporting organisations are typically, with some notable exceptions, typically very lean, uh, typically volunteer led, and and based in communities. And I suppose. What I'd say to to sum that up is, is your organisation representative of the community in which you live, play, operate? And is everyone in your community in which you live, play and operate, do they have equal access to the joy that is your sport, the joy that is your club or your industry or your association? And if not, why not? And then what do we do about that? And I think 
your advice around we are people, we have multiple intersecting parts of our identity, but hear those stories and 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 have those people around to say, hmm. And, and, and look, I'll come back to gender. There's this well-documented evidence and I am a, I'm a living, breathing example of you need to have some people at the table to go, have we thought about X, Y, Z? Have we put a gender lens over our policy here? Have we put an ability lens over what we're doing here? And you know, again, and I'm, I'm quoting Dylan because, as I said, he was very front of mind. I listened to him a couple of times yesterday. Just like women need to be at all the decision-making tables where decisions are made and strategies are set, so do people who identify with having a disability. And if not, why not? And I think that's the let's reverse our mindset. Say, well, why don't? Why shouldn't we have someone here on our board, on our committee, in our membership ranks with a disability? And I know, again, I don't want to oversimplify, but the mutual mutual benefit from doing that for sport is just so incredibly powerful. Final couple of questions. What's next on your goal list? Because you do a whole bunch of different stuff as we've talked about. You're a very accomplished, incredible woman. So what's next? I think, Michelle, my immediate future is revolving around having a bit of surgery to my leg. Uh, I've joked for far too long that, oh, you know, if anything's wrong, I'll just chop some of it off. And here I am about to chop some of it off. (laughs) That's called karma, I believe. So that will then enable me to get back to a beautiful quality of life in terms of walking pain-free and being able to train consistently, etc. in that sense. So that's kind of in the the immediate future. And we had the great news yesterday that elective surgeries are starting back up again in Melbourne. Hallelujah. So hopefully that should be happening soon-ish. And Paris 2024, it's not that far away. Like if I (laughs) kind of really only two years and what, seven months really (laughs) Uh, till Paris. So I would love to be there competing as an athlete. It's, yeah, I've just got to get this building block in terms of my body to allow me to do that. Uh, I mean, the mind's there, the fire in the belly is there, the love of all things sport and the Paralympic movement and being a part of that is is there. Uh, I've just got to get my body to to come along with me on that journey. Well, I'm, I'm right there with you in spirits because I'd, I'd love to be able to say, because I was so excited when Carol uh, was at Tokyo and I was so my heartbroken for her when she, when she had her crash because I it's so nice to be able to go, there's my friend. There's my friend. I'm so proud of them. But anyway, so I'd, come on, Paris. All right. Well, good luck with the surgery. All right. Final message. And this is the big one. What's your call to action? What's your message to people who hold power in sport about closing the gap for disabled women in sport? I think, you know, we've, we've touched upon so many various things from simple to big strategies that you can do from a Hannah McDougall call to action. And I think something that's just completely influenced my life in, I I believe, a really helpful way from a a day-to-day basis and how I make decisions is this beautiful skill trait called mindfulness. (laughs) So, and if we look at mindfulness and how that can apply here, not only can it help us become more aware of our biases in this space, 
you know, you can do it for free <laughs> anytime. Mm-hmm, you sure can. Yep. Anywhere. You can it also helps us improve our relationships with people and perhaps see that person first. And then, you know, it also helps us personally in terms of our ability to to function and to think and to regulate our emotions and that psychological flexibility. So my call to action would be to simply practice five to 10 minutes of mindfulness a day because that will have many ripple effects. You know, I was not expecting that answer. I completely love it because I am a big fan of mindfulness and I tend to practice most days, whether guided or you know, just breathing and what have you. And I, and I do agree, but what I hadn't really thought about, Hannah, which is such a great call to action, improving oneself and getting to know oneself, but having the ability to stop, breathe and reflect on what's got me here. Is it still serving me? And what is it, what it's time for next? We've got to be able to stop, breathe and reflect. And when it comes to equity, inclusion and people feeling like they belong, people from all walks of life, all wheels of life, that's got to be a great thing. So building that that you know, that humanness in us, that, that ability to have empathy, to have kindness or demonstrate kindness and have compassion, unexpected but delightful advice. So there you go, sporting administrators, five to 10 minutes of mindfulness every day. And it is interesting what pops into your mind. I, I can never clear my mind, but it is interesting what pops in. I can I can say, honestly, I've had some of my best ideas and enacted my best strategies because I practice mindfulness. So that's terrific advice. Dr. Hannah McDougall, thank you for your time, your wisdom and sharing your lived experience, which of course is complex, complicated, awesome. And and I've learned a new term, cripspirational. So there you go. <laughs> um, I, I promise I'm not going to use it though. But thanks, Hannah. I really appreciate it. And I know that the people listening to and reading about this, this interview we'll have some aha moments and think, what might I do? What might I do today to include more people, more women who identify as having disabilities? I really appreciate it. Thanks, Han. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate Michelle. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport because together we can close the leadership gender gap.